and I think what we've learned in the past months, right? Things can shift at any time and you can't always predict the shift. And however, you have to be in a position to go and respond to it rather quickly. And that response, it takes a certain agility of the mind, right? It takes not having silos. It takes, uh, it takes being in that mental space of paying attention and, and being able to respond. And I think that's the key at, at any time. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Alex Gorchev back. Alex, thanks for coming on again. Thank you for having me. So uh, excited to announce your new book here, Fearless Innovation, on Amazon, on alexgorchev.com, on Audible. Congratulations on getting this thing out. Thank you. You know, there's there's never been a better time to innovate, that's for sure. <laughs> so what's the what's the elevator pitch on on this book, Fearless Innovation? Well, you know, it's it's about the fact that at the end of the day, disruption can come at any time. I think we that's kind of we all know already. And then the second one is to deal with disruption. You need to have strategy. You need to have the right metrics. And technology is only part of the answer. Yeah, you know, and thank you for sending over an advanced copy. I think one of the things that jumped out to me the most is is around metrics. Can we can we just start off? Do you mind telling people maybe kind of the the back end story of of the, the travel giant TripAdvisor and what people may not recognize about metrics there? Yeah, no, I think when we think about the TripAdvisor, and that's one of the main case studies in the book, right? At the end of the day, it's the fact that that's one of the companies that really worked um, towards satisfying a metric, right? And when we think about the company, right, the, for us, our metric is the quality of our travel because we know and we trust the reviews, right? So it's trustworthiness, it's reliability. But when we think about the company, obviously, it's their ability to influence the purchasing decisions and it's their ability to go and, and kind of drive the market in that space with advertisers and, and being a distribution channel. So when we think about the metrics, what I firmly believe in is innovation should be measured. It can be measured and it must be measured because at the end of the day, it has to be pragmatic. Right. And if we're pragmatic, we're working towards a certain goal. And most likely we execute it in, more, in, in measurable milestones. So it's important to have the metrics. Yeah. I'm interested. You know, you've been a part of so many different kinds of programs in your career. I'm, I'm interested where you've seen this yourself, maybe on more of a personal experience that, that maybe has stuck out to you the most. You know, it's it's been a it's been a never it's been a never ending ad- adventure, right? But at the at the end of the day, I think a lot of our innovation initiatives it's about change management, right? And it's about getting people on board, right? It's about sharing ideas, and no matter um, no matter which job role I was in, right? I think that is something that I, that I truly enjoyed, and obviously. In my current role at Cisco, I just love working with people all around the world and and getting to hear their perspectives. 
and and before Cisco, what was really fun and exciting is working with, with the entertainment industry and and getting them on board to uh, to digitize music. That, that was that was a fun ride. Yeah, you know, I feel like we didn't talk much about that last time we had you on the show. Can you talk about what you actually did at Napster and some of these places? Yeah, so at Napster, I was looking at the, how do we exactly determine which music is being shared from for our system? How do we identify that it's indeed a licensed content? And how do we make sure that royalties are being paid, right? So at the end of the day, we were building a very different Napster that, that most of your listeners are probably familiar with. And, and that Napster was, was funded in part and supported by a company BMG called BMG Music, which is Burleson Music Group. So when I think about that, there's kind of two lessons, right? The first one is resisting change, right? At the end of the day, music industry resisted Napster in, in many ways. It's, it sued Napster, it tried to slow down and stop it. And yet it worked with us for BMG Music that, that, that was an early pioneer of kind of online music. And, and some people in the industry supported that. So it's, it's, the lesson is, even if you face resistance, is to go and find an, an advocate and find the forward-thinking uh, people that can go and support you and that and you can carry them for the journey. And then another one, if I may, is even if you're one of the most innovative companies in the world, and, and I would bet that Napster was that company at the time, you can't really predict the future. For example, when we were working on digital rights management at Napster, Everything was based on on digital download, and then literally it burned to a CD. Never have we ever thought about streaming, or we, and we haven't really built that in the system. So, and if you look at the the world today, right? I mean, I don't even have a CD player in my house. So, absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to me. Um, kind of going back to the TripAdvisor story. You know, they, they weren't able to predict the future either. You know, Napster didn't see Spotify coming, right? Or what mm -hmm. would happen with, with the Apple Music Store. And when you think about TripAdvisor, you know, to me, what's interesting about it is, you know, they they kind of have to juggle a little bit, right? Because they they need to be completely trustworthy to the people reading the reviews, right? They just cannot break that consumer trust. And yet they need to figure out how to do that while still motivating people uh, in ways that are helpful to the advertisers that, you know, that pay the bills at the business, right? And it's funny how they wouldn't know the future, but by having certain metrics and, and you know, and actually measuring instead of going off gut feeling, they've got so much more data to navigate through the murkiness of, of growing a business. At least that's what it looked like to me as I was reading through your case study. Yeah, absolutely. And and at the end of the day, right, they took a risk. And who would have thought that people would be so active on uh, reviewing the hotels and other experiences, right? Same with Wikipedia, right? People didn't know about this. But at the end of the day, I think when you look at the advertisers and and you look at, at the consumers that are leaving the reviews, I really hope that the goal is the same, right? The advertisers, they want to provide the best experience. And the consumers want to receive the best experience. So indeed, it's a match made in heaven, right? And what I appreciate about the TripAdvisor and the transparency of their reviews, it just keeps bad actors out of the market, right? Because these are the, you know, the, the property owners that don't necessarily 
that are not necessarily providing the kind of correct information to begin with. Yeah. You know, a lot of times on the show recently, we've been asking to kind of take principles and apply them to two different categories of entrepreneur. The folks who at, at the smaller end where, you know, maybe maybe the business is very built around them. It's almost almost more, more like a self-employed situation, it feels like at that point, you know, and they're, they're trying to get some escape velocity there and turn it into a, a real business system that does the work for them instead of them doing all the work, right? And then those folks who, who really have, you know, grown something substantial, they're in the 50 million a year revenue, 100 million a year revenue, but maybe they're not feeling the clear path to, to drastically improve it from there. You know, maybe there's a bit of a golden goose that lays the, the egg that they're, the goose that lays the golden egg that they, they really don't want to mess with, but they still have these other ambitions and stuff. So maybe if we start it, let, let's start with that group first. You know, you've been exposed to entrepreneurs and innovation at all different levels. When you think about those folks that they really are kind of that, that poster boy success story, like they're, their business worked and they've made great revenues and they've gotten really big. They're not, they're not Apple big. They're not Uber big, but you know, they're doing 50 million, hundred million a year. Like they're, they're really sizable, but they are also kind of having that size become an anchor. When you think about metrics or, or really anything in the book, what, what's, what's a piece of advice you have for folks at that level? Is, uh, is, uh, don't get comfortable. Right. And I think at the end of the day, Success it breeds complacency and and we start believe I mean success is real right but I think we start either believing in our luck or in our wisdom and stop paying attention to the environment and I think what we've learned in the past months right things can shift at any time and you can't always predict the shift and however you have to be in a position to go and respond to it rather quickly. And that response, it takes a certain agility of the mind, right? It takes not having silos. It takes, uh, it takes being in that mental space of paying attention and, and being able to respond. And I think that's the key at, at any time, be that the time of comfort or change, being responsive, paying attention, and kind of never, and always being alert. I think that is the best guidance that, that I can give. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm thinking I'm I'm just on your LinkedIn here and I'm thinking about, you know, somebody like Forbes, right? You write for Forbes sometimes and they've obviously got a big, you know, 100-year reputation and yet, you know, the world of printing magazines has obviously had some big changes in the last couple decades here, right? When you think about the media industry, for instance, specifically business media, what what kind of things have you seen elsewhere? What kind of ideas do you have for folks who they actually have something going there, but it would be easy to be complacent. Yeah, when I think about the, the business media, right, at the end of the day, it's an interesting going back to the TripAdvisor story, right, or any media. It's a, it's a balancing act between advertising and the content, right? And I think it's essential that people think about who they're serving, right? And at the end of the day, if the publication is providing uh, quality content, uh, people are going to subscribe to it and they're going to consume it no matter if it's print or or not, right? When I think about Forbes, I read it online. I love the fact that they have a tremendous amount of content, right? If I look at the Harvard Business Review, I can go online and I can mine that data, right? So 
so I think, to be honest, the medium not as important as as the quality of the content, right? And and quality content will always win. And and by the way, when we think about just again transitions, who would have thought that the local journalism would be back? But right now, it's it's back and it's <laughs> it's strong because in the time of crisis, of course we want to know what's going on in the world. Of course we care. But we want to know our communities. Uh, we want to know what's going on in our city and the county and state and how things are with our neighbors. So seeing kind of the rise in local journalism is just another phenomenal example of um, um, how things are evolving uh, quite fast. Yeah. Well, you know, kind of continuing this theme, by, by the way, congratulations on uh, making it to the Wall Street Journal bestseller list with the book. Thank you. You know, thinking about Wall Street Journal, Forbes, other folks, you know, we want we want Greystoke Media to become a, you know, we want to become a real entity in that business media landscape. In addition to the the quality of content, any other thoughts about the future of what might be coming down the pipe or or trends that you see that you, that would affect that space? To be honest, no. And it's uh, one of the things that I I realized kind of I was thinking, what are my 2020 predictions, right? or hopes and expectations and dreams. And to be honest, some of the hopes came out, right? We, But most of the predictions did not. So n- no, I don't know what's ahead in front of the, the media landscape. Um, having said that, I think, I mean, obviously people are still gonna consume it. I think needless to say, audio is, is gonna continue to increase. My five-year-old son, Matthew, I mean, he's consuming most of his, let's call them news, Right or the things that he's interested in through Alexa or Google, right? And he's he's talking to to that. So definitely, I would I would see that there's there will be continuous shift into that space. <laughs> I like how you describe it as talking to Alexa because my my youngest child, the nine year old, is yelling at Alexa. <laughs> I'm always having to tell him just talk. You don't have to yell at Alexa. I'm 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 the one yelling. <laughs> yes, because I think. Alexa can do all the wonderful things, except that it could never turn off when I when I tell Alexa to turn off. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm thinking about what some of the other principles in the book, and I'm thinking about you know at Bloomberg Philanthropies where they're they're mixing and matching and bringing experts in and lending people experts and and maybe learning in tr- non traditional sources or or maybe you can kind of m- maybe give a quick overview of the the Bloomberg case study for a second. Yeah, so when I when I talked about Bloomberg, right, I, I've talked about the fact that it's incredible to see that there is a lot of innovation that's happening at the at the city level, right? And and many cities are hiring chief innovation officers, which is an interesting job, right? Because they, they deal with everything from data privacy to to ensuring that citizens get innovative services. So I'm I'm lucky to live in the city of Carlsbad that that has a chief innovation officer. And I, and I do believe we have a better, kind of better experience here because of that. What I've highlighted with Bloomberg Philanthropies is, is the fact that they have something called I-teams, right? And it's, it's the way that they help supplement the, the city services with on-demand innovation teams. So it becomes like a uh, philanthropical Uber consulting um, arm for, for city innovation. And when you think about that, uh, the great thing is that cities can exchange information with each other, right? Because at the end of the day, of course, each city is a unique, but they have a set, say, you know, same set of problems. 
and and being able to tap into that wisdom, uh, wisdom of uh, of a consulting arm or, or uh, a philanthropical organization, I think it's it's quite amazing. It, it, it's almost I talk about that in the book when I talk about Silas, right? When when we think about any large organization, be that a city or a company. There's this, there are many advantages, and one of the advantages is just the knowledge that exists within, within the organization, and, and often the silos get in the way, so breaking those silos, are in, it's essential, and, and I think anything that, that helps break that silos, no matter if your company big or small, is, is the key, and I know, you know, many entrepreneurs, they listen to your podcast. I think one of the th- word of wisdom that I got to share is any company that is, that is small and growing, I would make it a priority to ensure that no silos are built. Yeah, it is. It is interesting. You know, I was just reading one of the versions of Richard Kosh's book, The 80-20 Principle. It's the one where he's like added all these like, you know, 92 other principles from, from nature, right into it. And Mm -hmm. he talks about how when, when groups of humans self-organize, they naturally self-organize for their own benefit, just like nature does. They don't naturally self-organize for the maximum benefit for the whole group. They, they, they naturally self-organize for the benefit of their little group. Right. And when you get those silos, it is interesting at even small companies, how often you know, this team and that team feel like they have entirely separate purposes to show up to work and they have to be like, you know, yet sometimes the leaders have to use like a carrot and stick to even get them to work together. You'd think that they worked for completely separate companies, but they're just different divisions within the same company. Yeah. And that's the sad part of it. Right. And if you think about the, uh, I was thinking about the difference between a startup and a large company and, and we can, we can talk day and night about that. But at the end of the day, when you think about the startup, a startup is, is mainly a team sport, right? And in a, in a large organization, that often becomes a political process, right? And, and that is a result of silos so, or the result of being surrounded by like-minded people. And there's nothing wrong with that expression. In fact, I was getting on a call with you and I talked about, hey, it's, you know, it's, it's great to be with like-minded people. Of course, it's emotionally satisfying and, and it's comforting. It's the comfort zone. But when we think about innovation, the magic happens when you're slightly outside of that comfort zone, right? And therefore, bringing in like-minded people is not always the right solution. You know, I, I in know fact, it's the wrong solution. Yeah. You know, I know we're closing in on time for the first half of the interview. I actually want to spend a lot of time in the second half of the interview on that. I have a bunch of questions for you, you know, kind of rounding out the the previous question when you were talking about kind of the answer, it, it made me think, you know, where these city innovation officers, they can talk to somebody else in a similar position who's non-competitive, right? The chief innovation officer at Carlsbad, he doesn't, he doesn't feel threatened. Like, you know, I used to live in San Clemente a little bit, not too far from you. Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if anything, those, those two innovation officers might have some similarities and questions, but, you know, one of them isn't competing for the other one's job or something. You know what I mean? So there can be that that sharing of ideas and lessons learned. And I thought, for me, I, I wonder what you think of this idea. The, the idea that came to mind is, you know, what if I could put together a roundtable of other folks trying to make, you know, media brands for the 21st century 
and just intentionally try and put non-competitive groups, you know, go out and find, you know, some folks in the political space, some folks in the, you know, the entertainment, some folks in the, you know, electronic space, you know, and just go find myself peers who are not competitive, but are up against the same problem as me. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Because when, when you think about, I think it's a brilliant idea, right? Because when you think about the higher purpose, this is where, where the things are, are possible, right? If you think about the cities, they're non-competitive in a way because at the end of the day, they're all of service to the citizens, right? And, and, and that is a higher calling, and that's what unites those individuals. And if you think about any business, I am quite confident that in any space, there's that higher calling, and, and people are, you know, they ultimately want to do good and they want to be of service to others. So as long as that niche is found, um, I think that conversation can exist and, and be very non-competitive. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the questions I've really liked asking guests lately is, what, what's some advice you would give a younger version of yourself? I would think it's really around people skills, right? And, you know, I came to this country when I was nearly 16 years old. And one of the things that I quickly realized is, I don't have people skills, nor do I know the language. I can read the language, but I can I can kind of listen to it on the radio and understand some words, but not many, right? And it was a blessing in disguise because I've spent a lot of time online kind of before the web or at the time the web came out and, uh, um, and uh, made a lot of friends and a lot of money that way. And I learned a lot of things. But I think at the end of the day, Everything around innovation is is really connected to relationships. And, and I want to zoom on that for a second. It's not really who you know to take your idea forward. It's about ensuring that you view yourself as a part of the team, of a larger team, as you build your product or service or a new adventure. Because at the end of the day, the lonely innovator is a myth. And and then kind of in my earlier years, I was trying to, you know, come up with ideas or rather materialize ideas without understanding that, well, they're kind of float to begin with. And if I would have worked with five people and would have listened to them, I would have had much better outcome. Yeah, that's great. Well, like I said, I think that's something we should be talking about more on, on part two. So for people who want to connect with you, maybe they want to hire you to come speak at their organization or teach a workshop, or they just want to come check out your book, what, what are the best places for them to connect? I would say it's LinkedIn or AlexGorchev.com. And, you know, I, yeah, I just, I love connecting with, uh, with people that are in the same space. Kind of, you talked about solving similar challenges. And I think all of us in the innovation space or entrepreneurship space, we're all, we're all solving very similar challenges, irrespective of what industry we're in. I love it. Well, everybody, tune back into part two. We are really going to go for a deep dive on entrepreneurship and startups as a team sport. Thanks, everybody, for listening.